You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. From pitch side to print, to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Coming off maybe the most maybe the most exciting game in Timbers MLS playoff history. Maybe I not. Saw a Twitter been, debate about this yeah, today. We've been debating between this. two prominent <laughs> Portland soccer personalities debating whether it was fifteen or eighteen that was the more dramatic of the playoff wins. Which what did you think? Yeah, so I, I put out a poll after the game to kind of get an idea of what fans Ooh, were science. thinking. Uh, <laughs> a Twitter poll, the most scientific <laughs> method. The um, purest sampling yeah. in the world. Um, so like 60% of people said they still thought it was the double post Kansas City knockout game. Yeah. And I think part of the, what plays into that is it was here at Providence Park. And then just like that penalty kick shootout. I mean, it just so many times it felt like the Timbers were about to lose that. And it was just like fate that they won it or yeah. something. Um, so I can see that. Um, and maybe it's just like my, the bias of it being recent, but I, I think I felt, um, that the Seattle game was the most exciting game I'd ever covered. I kind of side with 2015 because there were two just absolutely at the death goals in that game. Obviously the keepers eventually had to come into play and the fact that it was just one leg winner take all. And you knew coming into that, uh, event that, you know, those were the stakes, the quick turnaround and everything. But I mean, I'm not going to tell somebody who thought that Thursday's game was, uh, was awesome, that it's not awesome. I mean, for, I mean, it was awesome. <laughs> it, it was awesome. I mean, for me, this is me still not being like a Timbers fan or anything. I'm sitting there on the field and when Seattle scores, I just pause and look around and go, oh my gosh, this is an amazing scene. Same thing when the Timbers score, when Dyron scores the goal in extra time, three minutes to do it. I just pause and look up to that Northeast section that has the Timbers army. I'm just like, holy cow, I can't believe they're filling up this whole place with noise right now. It's just this low murmur for the rest yeah. of the crowd and then the Timbers army. So, you know, maybe in time I'll get to where like I'm kind of quietly fist pumping for <laughs> the Timbers. When I do, I think I have to resign from this job. But I had a different perspective on Thursday's game just from being in that position. Well, I think the rivalry element of it is just... Um is just an aspect of it that makes it maybe even more exciting for me because it's just two fan bases that just really wanted to beat that other team. Not that the Timbers Army didn't want the Timbers to beat Kansas City, but there's just another level when it's Timbers Seattle. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. And I think that even though there weren't the the at-the-death goals except for the Rui Diaz goal last Thursday – 
Blanco's goal really felt like, whoa, like, because after Seattle scored and the way that they scored off of Jeff Antonella's mistake, it just felt so deflating. Like, how can the Timbers come back from this and they can come back with, from it with that goal? But at the time, it was hard to see how the Timbers got back into it. Plus, and we can talk about this more, I just thought the Timbers, they looked so fatigued at the hour mark. When I was down there, I'm starting to see players kind of not be able to get back into their right position, not be able to cut off ca- uh, passing lanes like they were used to. And I just said to somebody else that was there at the time, I was like, these guys are dead. I think it was the 62nd minute <laughs> I said that. So the fact that they end up get, giving away the goal, are down on away goals, and still came back, uh, I thought it wasn't at the death goals, but they were almost, in a way, the same level of drama. Yeah, so let's get into this a little bit. We've kind of just came in without giving any explanation i'm assuming everyone listening to this podcast watched the game so uh we should stop assuming that though yeah, we always do hopefully they understand what we're talking about but there, there might be someone who just likes this podcast but doesn't watch timbers playoffs games i don't know but uh, as we kind of mentioned the timbers went up to seattle uh, last thursday um for the second leg of the western conference semifinal series the timbers uh, led on aggregate heading into that game after winning 2-1 to one in the first leg of the series here at Providence Park. Uh, they ended up losing in regulation 2-1 um, to one to Seattle up in Seattle. So that was the final regulation score that sent the game to extra time um, because at that point they were tied on aggregate 3-3. Three to three. Um, the official scoreline of the game, as, as you see in box scores, ended up being a 3-2 oh to two final Seattle win um, because both teams scored an extra... What cumbersome language to include there? I wonder to <laughs> we'll what see. end you were doing <laughs> we'll this. Um, because both uh, both teams scored an extra time, and then the Timbers won on penalty kicks 4-2 to two in, as we've been saying, debating potentially one of the most exciting games in say the word MLS advance. Say history. the word advance. <laughs> you, you need to say the word advance here, so the yeah. next thing you do sounds the, even more the powerful. The Timbers advance despite losing in extra time 3-2. Yes. to two. <laughs> Wow. What a, what a unforeseeable scenario, yeah. right? Is that what we're going to say right now? <laughs> no one could have guessed it. No. Wow, you had to be so brave in order to guess that. <laughs> I, I can't even fathom the bravery that must go into a week ago saying, the Timbers are going to lose the game, but they're going to win the war. Like, what foresight that person had? Well, what about our predictions? What were what yeah. did we predict? So you predicted multiple Valeria assists, which... I got halfway there. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. well, did you get halfway to multiple? Kind of, I mean, yeah. One? Yeah, but... Multiple would be two. Yeah, but I... I, I got I, halfway to a multiple. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> it's the pedantry podcast. But you specifically predicted not that, is, is what I'm... You predicted specifically yes. multiple, so... Yes, and as we've established with these side bets, all or nothing... Like, if we want to give me some partial points, that's fine. I'm giving the points yeah, for this you're giving the points, so you can make a decision there. Um, I'm, but... f- I'm fine with these side bets being all or nothing, because we've established that when I get one right, it's extra points. When I get one wrong, no mercy. Zero points for Richard on this one. But I predicted a 3-2 <laughs> Seattle win where the Timbers still advance. And from what I remember, you sort of... Uh, oh, I s- you, you sort of were making fun of me for this prediction. I I was making fun of you for this prediction. You were making fun of me for having it both ways. Yes. Yes, I very much <laughs> but was. I, it was good I had it both ways because no, I was No, we found even right. another way that you could have it. You had it three different ways. Because not, not only did you predict, not only did you not have to predict that Seattle would lose at home, you predicted they would win, 
but still get to predict that the Timbers advance, you had this amazing safety net of yeah. potentially 30 extra minutes and a penalty kick shootout to save you at that point. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing, Jamie, how well you thought that out. And I really should give you some extra points for just the foresight. The it's, I mean, for all you know, since we we were just talking about three two losses and Timbers advancing, you don't know. Maybe I did was thinking penalty kicks in the back of my mind. You you have no I, idea. Maybe I thought that entire game was going to happen. Maybe. <laughs> uh, let's. So this tweet from November eighth is just an amazing tweet. It says, "Hey, Richard Farley, this is what I predicted: three two loss, but Timbers advance anyway." Sm- crying smiley face emoji. Hashtag RCTID. Hashtag Infinity Points. Yeah. Wow. That 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 is what I tweeted. <laughs> How often did you guys give each other infinity Just, I points? I think I only before? got it once. And what was the circumstances behind uh, that? I I think I don't remember exactly. It was I think it may have been Nat Barcher's scoring um and getting the exact score and it might have been the playoff game when that happened. So it have to be a playoff game and getting the exact score and then an event where you know Matt, Nat Borchers would score like twice every 30 or 32 games so a 1 in 15 chance. And really, you just got the score right in this one. Well, that's just because you took the side bet. You don't know. I, I might have predicted something. Maybe, maybe you're right. <laughs> something great. I might have predicted a, a spree goal. You don't know. Look, you're supposed to get predictions right. I know on this show, we're not really used to getting predictions right, but you're supposed to get predictions right. So to quote the scholar Chris Rock, what do you want, a cookie? Like, you're supposed to get predictions right. Now, granted, this wasn't the easiest prediction to get, but come on, infinity points for doing your job? <laughs> Now, I will admit that uh, a 3-2 scoreline isn't something that's obvious when you're going into a game, especially knowing that one team is likely to sit back, absorb pressure, as we saw almost with extreme monotony over the first hour of that game. Uh, I think you do do deserve a lot more points than a normal, like, oh, 28-32. I'm going to give you 70.1 points. Don't even break a hundred. No, you, you got the score right, and you needed extra time to do it. If it was three two, it, in just ninety minutes, I would give you more points. If it didn't have to go to penalty kicks, I would give you more points. But you had all of these safety nets to further the likelihood that you would get this right. I still think it's a great prediction given the circumstances. That's why I'm giving you so many points. But geez, how many cookies do you want, Jamie Goldberg? A lot of cookies. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I want a lot of cookies. Jamie Goldberg is never afraid to ask for something she thinks she deserves, and I think I don't think it's the worst argument to say that she deserves more points for this. But ultimately. You're supposed to predict games correctly. You don't get infinity points just for doing something unremarkable like this. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, I think probably the way that we've split up the prediction game makes it almost impossible for you to get infinity points. Well, at least in your opinion, we'll see. Maybe, maybe, when, I, maybe when I have points, point giving uh, the right to give points next week, we'll see what happens then. Well, although next week I won't. Right, <laughs> we won't actually give points. If next you're week. bold enough to give yourself infinity points next week, congratulations! <laughs> because the Timbers are not playing next week. We're in the middle of an international break now. Neither yeah. the Timbers nor their next opponent, Sporting Kansas City, will be playing until two Sundays from now, yeah. where they'll meet here at Providence Park, where we're recording right now, and then Thursday following that game. Short turnaround, the Timbers will be in Kansas City with a place in the MLS Cup final on the line. Before that, let's talk about a game that may rank at the top of the Timbers' history in terms of not only drama, but let's expand it to significance, to the historical context, the rivalry context. How important was that result when you're listening out 
the most important games in MLS era. Where does that rank, say, compared to 2015 in Columbus? Yeah, I think so. A lot of people brought that up today. Just you know, how can you rank this above uh, the 2015 MLS Cup win? The, the, the game, like <laughs> the game that they won the won the title. I, I, I mean, I, I think when it from a pure excitement standpoint, this this one's definitely uh, higher up. Um, and I think the only game that really, as we talked about, is the kind of the question mark of what's it in between is this or the Kansas City game. Now with Kansas City game, it sort of felt like um, in 2015, the double post, it sort of felt like this was destiny, uh, that this this magical penalty kick shootout, the Timbers have to win MLS Cup now. And they did. Yeah. So I think it just kind of plays into that storyline. I think it'll be interesting to see how this season sort of ends up because it, it sort of is going to determine i think sort of where this fits into timbers lore was it just an amazing playoff game and that's all we're talking about are we saying this is what sort of spurred the timbers on to win the 2018 mls cup see thursday's result almost feels the opposite because it feels like they're thwarting destiny having to have all these games in quick succession that's going against the timbers having to go to extra time having seattle score a goal uh, was it three minutes into regulation stopping time having them get that penalty kick call which I, I think was an obvious call that needed to be whistled against the Timbers. Having like all of these things happen, um, having Jeff Antonella spill that ball, it's like everything was working against the Timbers so that when it went to penalties, like you could t- think two ways, but I was definitely thinking, you know what? If the Timbers were meant to advance, they had so many chances before this to advance. Like we're in the penalty kick shootout, Seattle's at home, eh, it's probably going to break against the Timbers. Then they won the toss. They go first. Uh, they were never down in the penalty kick shootout. But I just look back on Thursday and think about all the different ways that the Timbers had to thwart fate in order to survive. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely a way to look at it. But I think either way, it's sort of that kind of game that could potentially give them momentum to to get through the next series. Um, there's a 17-game break which I think might sort of work, as you're saying, to thwart that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, that sort of momentum that they got out of this game. Um, but I, I think in terms of where this ranks in, in Timbers history and, and MLS history, it'll be interesting to look back at the end of the year because I think it, where they finish this year might uh, fit into that. Um, in terms of their full history, I mean, they go back to you know 1975. That's also an iconic Timber seattle playoff game. Mm-hmm. Um but ultimately, again, back, even back then, they didn't end up winning the championship. But that game is still looked upon as one of the best games in Timbers' overall history. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I can comment on that. Because so much of what goes into Timbers versus Sounders now is how the cultures and the fan bases off the field feel about these two teams at this moment in time. And so I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I knew how they felt in 1975. Yeah. Definitely can speak to the whole MLS era and... Uh, I think the fact that we can even compare it to the Kansas City game, that we can compare it to the 2015 final, speaks to the heights that Thursday got us to. And I mean, it got to those heights based on what superficially looked like a very lopsided game, but I don't know if it's fair to judge by just the numbers. Timbers were outshot 21 to 11. Both teams had six shots on target, though. Sounders had 14 corners to the Timbers, too. Uh, 58 crosses that they were forced to put in the game. Had two-thirds of the possession. Had over 800 passes, (laughs) which is, I think, 160 more than the previous playoff record. So you look at those numbers, but the reason that they accumulated all those numbers is because they weren't able to generate good chances. Yeah. It's, you know, if the Sounders were better at 
attacking in this game, these numbers wouldn't be as lopsided. They would have broken through earlier. They would have had clearer, cleaner chances earlier. They wouldn't have had to rely on a goalkeeping mistake in order to get that crucial goal. I know a lot of people are going to look at these numbers and just go, whoa, Seattle, they, they dominated this game. To me, uh, Portland, I'm sure, didn't want that game to play out the way it did over the first hour. But if it had to play out that way, Portland was okay just saying, try to score crosses if you want. Larry Smabiala is going to beast this. Yeah, I think that it was clear that um, at least part of Portland's game plan coming in defensively, if they are, if we're not going to have the ball, let's shut the Sounders down centrally. Mm-hmm. Because you look at those kind of pat, the maps from the first half, and it's just a lot of Sounders movement all on the flanks. And right. Timbers did a really good job of preventing Seattle from getting in dangerous spots and actually connecting on passes and doing anything um, substantial in, a, in central areas where they actually could cause some problems. So like you said, even though Seattle gets all these shots, um, neither team really in the first half came all that close to scoring. No. It was not a very interesting first half uh, for what ultimately became yeah. quite a crazy I, game. I mean, I was really impressed with Seattle's ability to maintain possession, keep getting, earning territory, breaking down the flanks without committing extra people forward. Because I think that's the thing that could have really opened up this game yeah. for the Timbers if Seattle had to commit a sixth person to the attack. As is, they were able to main their def- maintain their defensive shape. And with the play of players like Nicholas Lodero specifically, but even Harry Ship and Victor Rodriguez, um, Ozzy Alonso, they were able to control play in a way that the Timbers couldn't get out on the counter. And I think part of that definitely is the Timbers. You know, the inability to string together two or three balls, the amount of times that they lost possession just as, a, as they were exiting their defensive third they had to be better about that or they had to decide to put Jeremy Obobese into spaces behind the line where he could have at least tracked down a ball and held a play but I want to give the Sounders credit and I think in the first leg coming out of halftime a lot of people were asking well why didn't Gio go for a third goal it's like at some point you need to give the team that won 14 out of 16 games coming into this series some credit and the fact that the Timbers no matter how they had to do it knocked off the hottest team in Major League Soccer a team that has had one, two straight Western Conference titles. I don't know. To me, maybe this is the bias part of me saying this. To me, it doesn't matter how you win when you're facing a team with that resume. You get by. And I thought they got by in relatively impressive form. Yeah, I don't think ultimately it matters in the playoffs how you get by a team. If you if you find a way to get by, that's what matters. <laughs> It'd be funny if they did. Like the league, is, <laughs> league sends out a press release on Monday. Yeah, we've had to relegate the Timbers <laughs> to the ugly team bracket. Yeah, sorry. They just didn't meet our stylistic standards. We're going to be letting uh, the Columbus crew move on because they at least passed the ball better. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think it was not the prettiest game from the Timbers. If, no. if, if we were just looking at this as a one-off regular season game, there would be a lot of sort of negatives or, or at least things we want to grow Absolutely. on things that the Timbers have to do better if they want to keep getting wins moving forward um things like that you don't really look at it in the same light in a playoff game but um it, along with just the you know the the numbers that you sort of spouted out with the Sounders control of this game at least statistically on paper um I mean all of Seattle's goals uh, essentially came from defensive errors and, and glaring that's, ones too not yeah. just kind of like oh that person should have been there but they got pulled out of position no just really glaring errors and if the Timbers don't make those mistakes that quite frankly we haven't seen them make those kind yeah. of mistakes I mean we've seen the, the defense get broken down in Houston they looked overwhelmed in Minnesota they didn't look like they had a clue as to actually how to contain Minnesota they played pretty well on Thursday in my opinion but the defensive mistakes still and I don't 
I wouldn't call them forced mistakes. Yeah, no, it almost felt like the thorns earlier in the season where That's it's like, a good this parallel. is a good defense. This team's been good defensive on the defensive side. They are been pretty good defensively in this game. But man, those mistakes are costing them. But at the same time, and I know that the Timbers didn't put in a plan on Tuesday and Wednesday where they were like, yeah, we're just going to absorb pressure the whole time and let them rack up crosses. That was kind of plan B. If the main way of containing the Sounders didn't work, they could at least fall back to being an organized team that's going to keep everything on the outside because that's what the Timbers have kind of done all year. But they didn't go into the game saying, you know, we're going to be okay if they attempt 60 crosses. No, I I think they wanted to try (laughs) to win a midfield battle, but credit to Seattle. There is a reason they were the second seed in the West. And so credit to them for making it this far. If I were a Seattle fan, I'd be heartbroken after the way that the team went out. But, you know, there's a reason why the Timbers were on the verge of victory two different times in that game and took a 2-1 victory out of Providence Park. The Timbers certainly proved they're just as good as the Sounders. Yeah, I I mean, we talk about the defensive errors. It Drop, drop clock, <laughs> dropped cross from Jeff Adanella, a header from Blanco on an attempted clearance that just goes straight to Roy Diaz, and another handball from Blanco. Yeah. Like you said, all glaring errors. But each time, the Timbers respond. Mm-hmm. Um, after that error, Blanco gets uh, the goal. Then Espria comes in and gets the goal in uh, extra time, and then the Timbers win on penalty kick. Let's talk about Dyron. Yeah. We've talked about Dyron so much on this podcast, and I don't want to get to the <laughs> point where we're going, we're saying stuff like, oh, geez, Dyron was really good all, of, all along because I think we should embrace the fact that this was a surprise performance. Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> there was a certain degree of anxiety when Dyron was the first sub on Thursday. Just like, oh, my gosh, they need a goal, and... This is what the season's come down to, Dyron coming off the bench. But at the same time, Dyron now at this point in something like 530 career playoff minutes has three goals and four assists. Yeah. So it is worth asking, is Dyron a different player in the postseason? And if he is, do we just have to bake that into our evaluation of him as a player? Me personally, 530 minutes just isn't that much. But I do recognize that he certainly has delivered during the chances he has had over his three playoffs with the Timbers. Yeah, I I mean, like you said, it's a small enough sample size. You don't really know if he's a different player. But, I mean, that's not uncommon. I I think in all sports, there are players that you just think of as just great postseason players, players that just get in the right mindset, right mentality. Whatever's happened in the season, they can put behind them and just really rise to the occasion when there's just all that pressure. And and maybe that fits something for uh, Espria. And maybe that's why he's done well in the playoffs. Maybe it's just a little bit of a coincidence that some of his best games have come in these moments. Um, But it could go either way. It could be a mentality thing for him. Um, either way, he's been critical uh, for the Timbers in the playoffs when you look at the results they've been able to get. I mean, we've not really given him any credit for that uh, in talking about his regular season this year. We haven't looked back at 2015 and said, well, remember what he did? Remember that goal he scored against Dallas, mm-hmm. I believe? But when you look back at it and now that sort of looking at the context of this game, the Timbers probably wouldn't win MLS Cup in 2015, you know, if it wasn't for Espria. I love how, like, during the year, we have reasonably gone to going, what is Tyron even doing on the field to, 
this guy might be one of the most valuable playoff contributors in club history. I mean, it's just crazy, the extremes. And I don't feel like any of those questions, any of those sentiments are wrong. It's just really crazy looking back on a game where he had the assist for a goal that looked like it was going to take them into the conference final, the goal that looked like it was going to take them into the conference final, and then the penalty clinching kick that I don't... Thinking back, and I don't even know how, like, Stefan Fry gets, like, that much of that kick, and it just goes, still goes into the back of the net. But Dyron really stepped up. Um, but I want to ask you about a couple of other lineup decisions, the ones at the beginning of the game. What did you think when you saw that Alvis Powell had been selected at right back over Zarek Valentin? I mean, my first reaction was that it, with three games in nine days, it may have made sense. That's one of the positions that is a little bit closer. And instead of taking out a trying to throw Zarek into game three in that stretch who might be tired in that situation, Palace may be just a better choice. He He's fresh and you know that he can play this position. I, I mean, I think he obviously also adds a little bit more going forward um, inherently, and maybe that's something, I don't know how it really played out, but maybe right. that's something Saresi was sort of looking at and saying, well, maybe this would give us a boost in the attack if we need a, a goal at some point in the game. Yeah, and then what did you think of Andres Flores starting in central midfield over Lawrence Olam, uh, Christian Paredes, Bill Tuiloma, whoever else you can think of to put in there? Uh, Andres Flores got the call. Yeah, that was interesting. I, I think, again, it made me think that maybe... Uh, Gio was a little bit more attack-minded going into this game than maybe you would expect from a team going on mm. the road, taking um, an aggregate lead. I, again, I don't know that it played out that way, but you, yeah. I think in choosing between Olam and Flores, you're getting a, a player that's a little bit more attack-minded and isn't going to just sit back and be that um, number six that that's just going to protect the back line um, that you might get with Olam. Yeah, I thought it was a very interesting decision when I heard about it. And I definitely thought to myself, yeah, didn't really talk about the fact that Flores might start very much during this week. Kind of feel like shortchanged him now. Because amongst the various media appearances and writings I do, it was very much like, okay, well, Alum has been the guy that's been coming off the bench. He's probably the favorite to go in there. But Paredes played a lot earlier this year. But even we saw Tuiloma at times come off the bench and be that person. And he has a background as a midfielder, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like in hindsight, we should have talked about Andres Flores a little bit more because I think Andres Flores has something like 24 appearances this year. Yeah, I just didn't think... I mean, that one surprised me more than the Powell decision because I just didn't think if if you stick with the 4-2-3-1 that you wouldn't would that you would go with someone who wasn't more of just a straight six i yeah. thought you that's kind of what you would need to replace guzman and Savaresi went in a different direction and to his credit Savaresi, i think was proven that he at least made a good choice i don't know if it was the right choice because we don't have natural experiments we get to see how lawrence would have done in that situation and christian would have done in that situation but except for one really bad back pass in the 41st minute where andres eventually had to take a yellow card because he <laughs> passed it straight to Rui diaz uh, i thought that andres played very well and i thought the positioning that he and Diego Chara had all night long, shutting down passing angles to Rui Diaz, as well as anybody else that was behind the midfielders, really, really explains why the Sounders had to stay wide all throughout that first hour, 67 minutes or so. Uh, Let's go ahead and fast forward to a matchup that I feel like we know a lot less well than we did Seattle versus Portland, because we had three games of Seattle versus Portland during the regular season. 
I and I felt like at least a couple of those games were representative of what the team's levels were. Kansas City has played Portland twice this year. A nil-nil draw here at Providence Park this summer, 0-0 for those of us that speak American. I thought that was a decent game, but it didn't feature Diego Chara. And then the second game, a 3-0 loss at Children's Mercy Park later in the summer. Giovanni Savarese has been very clear that that was the last game of what he what was the most trying stretch of the year where he tried some things and tried some things basically means he pushed some people over that three games in seven day stretch where there were two significant trips in that time too and it just didn't work out so I don't know how you feel Jamie but I'm looking at the matchup between these two teams and I feel like I just have to think about this on a purely theoretical level and then none of the game tape that we've seen this year between these two teams at least really applies to these coming games yeah I I think the I think the first game uh, is probably easier to look at, but like you said, I, I think that without Diego Chara in there, it's a little bit different. If I remember correctly, they went with a four-three-two-one in that game, and I, I think coming out of it, we talked about how they were better equipped to deal with the absence of Chara, and yeah. that was sort of the biggest takeaway from that Kansas City draw. Um, even though they weren't able to win, they had opportunities and. Um, had found a way that they weren't going to just have a massive letdown with Chara not in there. Um, the second game, yeah, was was in a compacted schedule, and, and the Timbers clearly at that point in time did not know how to manage compacted schedules. That clearly has changed since they just managed a three-game in nine-day stretch. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think there's a ton we can necessarily take out of those games. I, I think Kansas City's a very good team, Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to be a challenge for the Timbers. I, I don't think there's any reason to think that the Timbers have Kansas City's number uh, on that side of it because we haven't seen it this year or, or that they're going to match up necessarily well or, or poorly with Kansas City. Um, but Kansas City finished first in the West. Um, they conceded 40 goals this year, which was second fewest in the West, and, and they scored 65 goals, uh, third best in the West. So yeah. pretty good on both sides of the ball. Um, obviously had a good season historically Kansas City has had trouble I think at the end of the year that's something that they've had got a little bit of a rep for they didn't do that this season they managed to to finish strong in their last few games although I think there was a moment in in one game that they had to come back and and people were saying that it was about to be the Kansas City collapse again um but yeah it's it I think the matchup itself is harder to discuss but this is not going to be an easy series for the Timbers no I, I think that they're underdogs here I have a lot of faith in Giovanni Savarese's ability to put in a game plan to get the Timbers results over 90 minutes because we've seen that a lot of times this year. And in that way, the way the playoffs are formatted, I think, helps the Timbers somewhat because if they get a result at home, just like we saw in the Seattle series, while that might not make them favorites going into the next leg, it allows them to play the next leg on their terms, so to speak, or at least um, play in a manner where they can expect what's coming, play a little bit more... uh, focusing on one area of the game rather than the other Uh, at the same time like you said that plus 25 goal difference that is a level of goal difference that says mls cup title contender slash favorite that's a huge goal difference um you look at the fact that kansas city has after a brief wobble in the fall look like a team that has never had problems finishing a season I'm, i'm willing to throw that on my mind even though so many times on this podcast this year i feel like i brought that up 
At this point, I'm willing to look at the Kansas City team and judge it on this year's merits. I think the only thing to bring up uh, that I haven't brought up is the fact that Diego Rubio, one of their attackers, somebody who scored in the second game between the teams, he's going to miss the first leg with yellow card accumulation. Roger Espinoza is also carrying a yellow card into the second leg. The Timbers have Liam Ridgewell, both the Diegos, Chara and Valeri, as well as Andres Flores on yellow cards. The yellow cards don't reset out until after the second leg of the conference finals. So if any of those five players pick up yellow cards in Portland, they're not playing in Kansas City. Yeah. Um, and as we sort of mentioned before, uh, the series is a little bit away. Um, the first leg of the series is at November 25th here at, at Providence Park. Um, and, and then the second leg of the series, after waiting 17 days in between games, the Timbers will have to turn around and play uh, two and five. Um, then the second one will be Thursday, November 29th at Children's Mercy Park. The first time I get to go there. Really? Yeah. Oh, actually. my gosh. I haven't been there in a few years. And definitely the last time I was there, I said I might never come back here. And it's not because of Kansas City, which is a decent place. It's not because of Children's Mercy Park, which is a more than decent place. It's just that I was there for that MLS Cup final that all of our <laughs> peers talk about, that where we lost appendages there. Um, at one point, I think it got down to 15 degrees outside in Kansas City between Kansas City and RSL. Is, it, is the press box uh, outside? About most of it is. I think there are only eight or 12 seats inside. So you might, you might be right on that line because I think all the local and national media are going to be inside and you're going to be pushed outside probably. You might get the one place they reserve for Portland. We'll um, see. Yeah. Um, that was one of the main reasons I wanted RSL to win. It had nothing to do with they the have fe- an outdoor press box too. <laughs> no, but um, for me, I'm, I'm going to be on the field no yeah, matter what. Yeah, I guess what. that's true. But I would much rather be on the field on a Sunday afternoon in Utah than an 8.30 kickoff in winter in Kansas City. It's not winter yet, but if it's going to feel like winter. Um, if It's not even going to be an 8.30 kickoff. It's probably going to be closer to 8.50. So yeah. um, that's 8.50 their time. It's going to be 6.50 our time. So... So I'm really looking forward to this. I'm gonna. I'm thinking about how many pairs of gloves I can have on my hands and still be able to use my iPad on the side sidelines. Uh, either way, I've got to get my head around this now because I was really hoping that the second leg would be here because Utah would have gone through, or we all saw Lake as some people call them. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners don't care at all about how we're going to be feeling, but as you know, I get really cold very easily as well. Yeah, we are spending so a lot of time talking about gonna, ourselves. Yeah, we're, we're, we basically apparently have been rooting on the series absolutely based on whether we'll be cold or not, which... Uh... Yeah, in case you guys ever want to... <laughs> if you ever want to accuse any writer or analyst or journalist of bias, they're biased towards their own health <laughs> first. They're biased towards their own comfort. They're biased towards the quality of the free meal they get in the press box. Actually, I don't think most people care about that. Uh, but I think that one thing that people may have been biased towards, maybe I alluded to it, is the fact that I don't know if many Timbers fans are saying this out loud, but based on how the Timbers performed against Sporting Kansas City this year, against Real Salt Lake, this is definitely the least desirable oh, yeah. of the two I, matchups. I, I mean, absolutely. From a from a non-feeling uh, sorry for yourself press uh, <laughs> perspective, yeah, the Timbers absolutely wanted to play Real Salt Lake. I, I mean, they're not going to say that, and maybe it didn't matter a ton to them, but that was going to be the better matchup. The absolutely. Timbers destroyed Salt Lake in their games. And that was the sort of the turnaround that's at the end of the season that has put them on this path to be where they are right now. And I still can't figure out why the Timbers why the Timbers were so much better against Real Salt Lake than they've been against other teams and why Salt Lake was so much worse against Portland than they were against other teams. I mean, we came out of those two games yeah. thinking Salt Lake is a bad team. And not only did they get into the playoffs, they advanced in the playoffs and then they almost got a result out of Kansas City. I mean, until the last moments of that game, it was still in doubt. So 
I, I don't think I'm looking at that and going, well, the Timbers were so much better than RSL and Kansas City was close with RSL. Therefore, the Timbers probably have yeah, a good chance no. against Kansas City. I think it's something mystical that I haven't figured out, <laughs> much like 96% of the things in the world. Should we go on to some questions? Yeah, let's hit a few. Okay. Uh, Tyler asks, is it time for the league to rethink the road goal tiebreaker? So I, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I actually, um, obviously there was a lot of confusion, I think from fans and and maybe players, um, in in sort of how these road goals work, um, when they go to extra time and and why, why why is it so convoluted while these away goals don't count in extra time, but they count during the regular game. But I, I like the idea I actually really like how the league does it. I, I like the idea of having this sort of tiebreaker um, that it doesn't immediately send the game to extra time just if it's tied on aggregate. Away goals are harder to come by. I, I think that's something that um, teams should strive to earn, and uh, I, I think it maybe puts teams in a position where they have to go for a goal on the road. It, it doesn't. It sort of prevents the games a little bit from just ending up being two teams being too scared to go at each other and maybe adds a little bit more excitement in the games. And I like the fact that both teams have 90 minutes to try to get to those away goals because I, I think if those carried over to extra time, it would be a little bit unfair to whoever had was hosting the second leg because essentially they would have less time to get the away goals than their opponents. Yeah, I disagree with that last point. Either away goals are harder to come by or they're not. And the fact that the team that's hosting the second leg potentially has 30 fewer minutes to get an away goal, but you got home field advantage. So it's not like you're totally being deprived of it. If the idea is that home field is important and that away goals are harder to come by, then that should be the case throughout the entirety of the potentially 210 minutes. But I would also say that, look, if you're trying to say that regular season results matter, you're trying to say there should be an advantage to finishing higher and we want to give you that advantage, why have away goals at all? Just say, look, we're not giving, there's no tiebreaker here. You don't get a potential offset if you're an away team by doing well. The home team has the advantage, period. That's it. I mean, if anything, let's give let's make home goals have an advantage and give it to, the advantage to the home team. I don't know. I think that um, I completely agree with you that there's a level of confusion here, particularly in the fact that MLS logically is trying to push us like, okay, what's the best rules? And now their rules disagree with a lot of the world's rules yeah. regarding away goals. Um, I think we should just go to a single elimination tournament. We talked about I mean, that last yeah. week. Yeah, I would so. just take the single elimination and keep it simple. That way the higher seed gets the yeah. uh, gets the advantage they're supposed to get. And you're not trying to figure out how does that higher seed still get the advantage, but in a two-leg series. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to just simplify this, particularly since, as we talked about, the playoffs run way too long to begin with. Um, but... I, if we're gonna do if we're gonna do road goals, I don't hate the way it's set up right now. I, I think there's a lot of like you said, being in line with the rest of the world and whether we even need away goals. I don't mind the way it's set up now. It is very complicated, and for fans that especially that are casually watching, yeah, um, it, it puts them in a position where it's not easy to follow at all, and that's definitely not great from a viewer experience. Yeah, just I. I think better would be 90 minutes, 90 minutes straight to penalty kicks if even, or 90 minutes, 90 minutes. And if you want to give the home team an advantage, play another 30 minutes on that second team's home ground. Say, hey, this is the advantage just having a better regular season. They get the 30 minutes. But away goals to me as a tiebreaker, they kind of don't make sense to me, to be honest with you. When you're also within the context of a format that wants to emphasize regular season play. If it's Champions League in Europe, yeah, because you have to do two legs. You 
don't really have the uh, ability to have a regular season to fall back on here. Let's just give the team that finishes higher in the regular season the advantage. That's it. Matt asks, did MLS screw up allowing Seattle Port- the Seattle-Portland game to be played on Thursday? MLS could have swapped the legs and had the second leg at Providence Park. So Matt's proposal would have had Seattle-Portland being played last Sunday and then Seattle-Portland in Portland played on the Thursday instead of at CenturyLink Field. Well, they couldn't have done that because CenturyLink was- Field was also being used the Sunday of the first leg for the Seahawks. But it is a hypothetical that I think is worth considering to what extent should we be, to what extent should we be falling back to no matter what the higher seed or the lower seed gets to have the second leg at home, even when they don't have control of their facilities, they don't have alternatives. Do we just bend over backwards and have the Timbers play on short rests for the third game in a row, only the second game in a row for their starters, just because your stadium has been leased out. No, it was the third game in the row for the Timber starters, though. Um, oh, yeah. The four, it was Dallas. A, yeah, it's the it fourth game in a row, just the yeah. third. Yeah, you're right. Um, but, yeah, no, I I think that had it been an option to switch, and it wasn't really because of the Seahawks and because of the car show, if you wanted the Sunday-Sunday setup, Seattle had a prom in both legs. Sunday-Sunday setup. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I like I said last week, I don't even think it really gives the, the, the higher seed an advantage the host second. I think I in many think ways it it's either. a disadvantage because like we talked about before you the the team after the first leg kind of knows what they're getting into and the only way it makes a difference i guess is technically extra time but the timbers show that that didn't really matter <laughs> last thursday at least um i i think that this is a bad look from less that they they sort of switched it i think they were put in a tough spot and yeah. there wasn't really a better option i think this was ultimately assuming they wanted Seattle to host a game this is ultimately what had to happen Um, but this is something that that the league should be talking with the Sounders about and talking with other teams about and owners next year and saying that this can't happen and what working way early in the season of how we're going to avoid these issues because it wasn't fair the Timbers went through but it wasn't fair to them that they had to end up playing uh, four games in in, uh, as we said three games in nine days uh, for their starters for their starters four games in 12 days Um, it it wasn't it was a disadvantage uh, that shouldn't have been there and um, it worked out okay for the Timbers but uh, this is something that MLS shouldn't be allowing to happen year after year. Yeah. I mean, I think, like you said, it was the best solution that was on the table, but it's time for a different table. Like, let's put a new context around this. And uh, yeah, and at the same time, and I think I wrote this in one of my previews last week, you know, this is what happens when you finish fifth in your conference and you take uh, your destiny out of your own hands in these regards. Like, these decisions end up going against you and a lot of the justification is like well you should have finished better higher in the table what for whatever that means that's the reality of this format that we've accepted matt a different matt asks why aren't defensive midfielders or fullbacks required in the best 11 that 3-4-3 formation with three center backs and four attacking midfielders is a hell of a formation for an actual game what do you think jamie yeah, it would be nice. Um, I, I think that there's a tendency to want to reward a lot of attacking midfielders and forwards because um, and center backs because it's kind of the, I mean, from the attacking side, those are the positions that are getting goals and assists and kind of those are the names that are showing up a lot because you it's easy metric to see. And, and similarly, the center backs are usually sort of the captain of the defense and, and the, the defenders that are, are more well-known throughout the league. Um, I think it would be interesting if you had to do it actually positionally. 
Um, I, I, given how it's set up, um, I ended up voting in a way that didn't make sense in terms of formation. I probably voted with a sort of three defender type situation. I did put Diego Char on in there, but uh, <laughs> I do cover the Portland Timbers, so that might. <laughs> or you just watch soccer. <laughs> or I just watch soccer. Um, yeah. But yeah, it would be interesting to see because it wait. Defensive midfielders and fullbacks uh, kind of uh, get the short end of the stick on this. They don't really have the opportunity to get into the best 11 because they aren't putting up the numbers or they aren't, from the defensive perspective, considered the most important defenders back there. They don't really have a way to get on the best 11, and it's uh, not that often that you see those positions getting recognized. It would be interesting for MLS to kind of put it, we want two defensive midfielders, we want two fullbacks or something like that. Um, it would absolutely change the best 11. I think it's an interesting idea. I don't see it happening. No, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, when I used to vote for these things, I would always put a left back and a right back and a defensive midfielder and one true striker. And then everything else I would kind of fill in. But I, I would always put four defenders uh, because at the time when I was still voting, 75, 80% of the league and still 75, 80% of the league plays a, f- a four at the back. I just don't think it's fair to not include those positions. It would be like having a Pro Bowl team that didn't have a left tackle. It'd be like having an NBA basketball team that didn't have a point guard on it. Uh, It would be like just go position by position, sport by sport. You want your best 11 to represent the league in a fair way. It's about fairness to the players. Like in this format, you're basically saying that right backs and left backs don't get the the same crack at a best 11. I don't think there has been a fullback in the best 11 since Todd Donovan, maybe, for the Galaxy. Maybe Graham Zussi got in there a couple years ago when he got converted. I'm not sure, but it's a really rare occurrence that a fullback, which is just crazy because every team plays with two. (laughs) And defensive midfielders, we know in this market, but other markets can say the same, whether it's Seattle or Salt Lake or um, other places that have had these great defensive midfielders. To imply that you can form a team without uh, a cornerstone player in the middle is crazy. So quite frankly this is it's dumb almost all awards voting in both the mls and nwsl is dumb for a lot of reasons <laughs> most of which is goes back to the fact that if you ask voters to actually vote for a team like they look on the field you're going to quickly find that the voter the voters for these two leagues they don't watch as much soccer as they should and it's a big problem. It's how you end up with things like Zach Steffen beating out Stefan Fry and Luis Robles for goalkeeper of the year. Um, I would just encourage you to not take awards seriously, to be quite honest with you. Heath asks, I, I say the team should add a quality central defender under 30 as a DP next season. Thoughts? Goldberg thoughts. I think that using a designated player spot as a defender uh, can be with, with a defender can be an effective choice as it was, I think with Liam Ridgewell here originally, I don't think you necessarily, you necessarily want to use it for someone who's more up and coming. Um, and maybe that's an effective quality players under 30. That's proven that they might be out there and, and maybe that's what the Timbers might want to choose. But I, I think that's going to put them in a position where that designated player spot is stuck with that defender for a long time. Um, and it might be a spot they need to use uh, in the attack over time because those are positions that you often need 
um, DPs to be able to find someone at the level uh, that you need to compete in this league. I, I think the better option, honestly, if you're going for someone under 30 as a DP um, in the defensive or someone under 30 as a central defender in general, I, I think it's trying to go the route the Timbers have, which is just trying to find TAM level players or, or, or players that they think can develop here over time and in, into starters um, rather than using a, a DP spot where there's only three of them and you don't necessarily want to lock it up with a defender for long term um, in that position. I, I just, I don't think it's the best way to go about that position. Yeah. When the Timbers brought in Liam Ridgewell, there was, I don't want to say a sense of desperation, but <laughs> almost exasperation at not being able to address this problem. Yeah. They'd cycled through different players. We knew how leaky the Gambian wall had come at that point after being so successful uh, before that. And I think that they felt the need to, you know, swat a fly with a sledgehammer. But you look at the history of defenders in this league, you just haven't had to spend a designated player spot on them. You look at New York Red Bulls, who maybe have the best center back tandem in the league. One is a recycled person that the Timbers originally drafted. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other one is somebody they that's they traded from their season. If you are having to spend a designator, designated player spot to get a top quality central defender, you're probably in a state of, uh, like the Timbers were, a little bit of desperation. And, uh, one, I don't think the Timbers are there yet. Two, we now have Tam to, to tackle that problem. And three, it's just not the best use of resources when you're probably not going to be able to upgrade your elite goal scoring, your offensive positions, unless you do use a designated player spot. Final question from Bobby. Oh, boy. Do we really want to go back to food talk here? I think you and I are just recovering from our last food discussion. All right. Let's see. Let's see if we can get on the same page here. Bobby asks, thoughts on cranberry sauce. Is a fancy recipe necessary or is it best from a can? So I am just cranberry sauce for me is just so far down the list of Thanksgiving foods that for me, I am totally fine with cranberry sauce from a can because I want to put all my focus on all the other um, aspects of a Thanksgiving meal. Uh, there, there's just so much else to focus on. I don't think having the special made cranberry sauce is what's really going to make the difference in my Thanksgiving dinner. So can's great for me. Yeah, I think cranberry sauce, when you think of it, you think of the taste that you get from the can. And almost every homemade recipe that I have, it could be good, it could be bad, but it's always like too tart or not tart enough or it has another ingredient mixed in or somebody's getting crazy and they're putting the marshmallows in it or something like that. It's like, no, you're thinking of the wrong thing. This is the wrong side dish to put the marshmallows in. But also, there's something to me about that cranberry sauce coming out in the cylinder from the can and just plopping there. <laughs> that to me is just... I feel secure with Just that. Just so Thanksgiving. <laughs> but Bobby, there's there's never been a fancy recipe that I can remember that really hits the taste the same way that you that comes out of the can. So for me, is it best from a can? I don't know if it's best, but it hits the note that you want to hit with cranberry sauce. I think we agreed on something food related. And we didn't spend five minutes <laughs> getting, getting mad at each other about it. <laughs> well, we've got all of this pent up aggression. So let's bring a third person in and take all of that aggression <laughs> out on him. Jake Zivin had some really memorable calls on Thursday oh, yeah. night, particularly the one on the Diron goal. Just hits the note perfectly, simply emotes perfectly. We're going to talk to him about that. This is our conversation that we had with him at Providence Park on Tuesday. 
Well, thank you so much, Jake, for uh, coming on the show. Uh, yeah. I feel like we probably should have asked you on sooner. You're definitely a perspective here we'd like to hear about. Yeah, why um, aren't you hosting this show? Yeah. Not, <laughs> you guys do a great job hosting this show, and uh, I'm, I'm good with that. Just yeah, imagine I, how good I'm you would be, I'm honored to be on it as a guest. <laughs> I'll let you guys. You guys are the podcasting experts. Um, yeah. No, it's good. Well, you're kind of an expert in the live experience, and given the live experience on Thursday, we had to have you on because... I mean, you were involved in 2015, the double post game. That yeah. was only, what, your third broadcast? Third TV broadcast. Third TV yeah. broadcast. But this one had just so many moments that had to, to test not only your ability to think on the fly, but just your composure behind the mic. What was it like for you going through that? Yeah, I hope I don't you know. The composure was maybe lost at times there. Blanco's goal, uh, Spria's goal. It's fun. That's, those are the games you love to call. I mean, that's you know, why you do it. You want, you want to call these really dramatic moments. 2015 was unbelievable. That I feel so lucky that I was able to call that game. Uh, this match was was awesome as well. You want those back and forth. You want those goals and the tension. I mean, I love calling a game, especially on the radio where you're calling every touch. So it's a much faster paced call, kind of mechanically from a play by play perspective. When it's so tense, when when say the end of regulation, Seattle needs to score, so they're just pressing and they're desperate and there's so much tension and so much action. Um, and then into extra time when one goal will change everything i mean th- those are these are the moments that, that you love to call there's so much fun man and we got we had a great one last thursday night yeah did you have a sense going into pks because i've heard you talk about the 2015 how you sort of felt oh kansas city's about to win this I, I think everyone did but did you have a sense going into this one well kansas city just had so many chances in 2015 i mean there were four times maybe not four that they could have won it there were at least two that they could have won yeah. right and they hit the post both two. times in once it got past five and multiple times where the timbers put themselves at a disadvantage and then kansas city couldn't take advantage right Falari missed or was saved Jewsbury missed uh with the timbers shooting first and each time kansas city uh responded by missing or getting saved so that that was just wild um i felt good about the timbers going into penalties i don't know why i mean we've seen it before maybe maybe that's why you know i've seen it with my own eyes the only other time i've ever seen them in a penalty shootout it's the only one they've ever been in in their mls era was 2015 yeah so i felt good about their chances going into it um and yeah they, they pulled it off i mean the moment for me that stands out when i went back and watched it again was your call diron espria's goal yeah. you talked to me about this before about how you know, there's a level that you kind of imagine in your mind, and for opposing team goals, you want to get to that level, but also you want to allow yourself to get above that level when the circumstances uh, allow. Can you walk me through that? Just that it's kind of like an element of professionalism that you have in your mind about how you want to try to stay objective, but you also want to capture the moment. Yeah, it's you know, there's a balance as calling the game for the Portland Timbers, right? When you're a home team announcer, um, you're going to give it more when the Timbers score than when. Seattle scores or the opponent scores um, because your listeners are Timbers fans. I mean, the people listening to our radio call or listening on 1029750, the game, probably in their cars, you know, maybe they're at work and they only had access to a radio. Um, that's our audience. And so they're Timbers fans. They're in Portland. So you're going to give it a little more. You're going to give more excitement when, when a Timbers uh, player scores a goal than when a Seattle player scores a goal. But I think if you listen back to the call of Rui Diaz's goal in, in extra time, I mean, there's a yeah. lot there too. It's maybe more difficult to hear because 50,000 people are 
or going nuts instead of you know kind of groaning when Espria uh, goes. But give give a little bit for that too, just because it's, it's a big moment. I mean, no, it's I a thought, huge moment in that game. I thought right? you captured that too. Yeah, so I think you ha- you have to even as a home team announcer. My opinion, the way my style is to to give those opponent moments um, a little bit as well because. I think they deserve it, but there's yeah, there's obviously a different level uh, when the Timbers score a goal, Espria scores, and an extra time like that. Um, yeah, you know, you you've you've got to go up. The, the goal is to not go too much, right? And you right. kind of lose it. I, if you listen back to my Blanco goal, I wasn't as happy with it. I think it maybe caught me a little by surprise, and the call, uh, you know, kind of went a little out of the range a little bit. But with Espria's, uh, I think it, I think it was all right. Yeah, there's nothing more embarrassing like when you're watching back to these. Yeah. Um, ESPN Plus broadcast now and the home announcer is just not even trying for the visiting goals like you know the Rui Diaz goal in the 93rd minute was a major goal and even if you don't give it the same oomph that you give the Dairon one you have to capture the fact that hey this is a goal there are 40,000 people screaming right now and whether it's A little bit of anguish in my voice, a little bit of disappointment. I've got to get up to there. I think you go up initially, and then you know, the re- as the call goes on, it kind of comes back to it's kind of the, the the climax of it's a goal, and then down to the okay, what does this mean for the Timbers? Yeah. Well, man, now we're going to extra time. All oh, we are three minutes. Away, the Timbers are three minutes away from from moving on, and now this game that, that we're all watching is going to extra time. So I think it's kind of that initial moment of the climax, and then okay, what what does it mean for the, the team that we're calling the game for, the Portland Timbers? Yeah. So a little bit off the game. Um, I just I don't think I think maybe some people know, but not everyone knows just how much preparation you put into calling these games. You have um, sort of your it's like a Velcro board, right? <laughs> yeah. Where you put who's in the game and have all these notes on every player, Timbers and the opponent. Um, even in preseason, you're yeah. doing this. Uh, how did that come about that you started using this board? Yeah, so every, I mean, every play-by-play announcer will organize their notes differently, and the kind of concept of a scouting board, a spotting board in front of you, um, whether it be any sport, basketball, football, baseball, hockey, soccer, is one that most people use. Um, when I started calling games for the Timbers in 2014, I didn't really uh, know kind of how to organize it. There, there's not, it wasn't really an established way for soccer. Whereas if you look online or you know you take classes, it's more of kind of an established way for football and basketball how, how people organize their charts, so to speak. So I kind of made it up on my own. I knew the concept was I wanted each player to have a little um, little you know kind of card bio card for each player that's in the game. And my initial thought was I wanted it to be magnetized, like two magnetized boards, so that you could slide the magnets around. Because in soccer, formations change, um, but they're also relatively consistent. So it's really helpful to have the team in their formation in front of you, because you know then when the ball's sent to the left side, um, you know it's probably the left left winger or the left back depending on where they started. It's easy reference. You can look down and you know where they are. Okay, hey, I have that note on Jorge Villafania. I look down, I know exactly where my Jorge Villafania notes are because he's in the left back spot on my notes. So my initial thought was magnets that allow me to take somebody off when they get subbed on. It allows me to change a formation if a formation's changed in game. Uh, that was just going to be too clunky and uh, pricey and heavy to carry around everywhere. So I went next, next up was Velcro and I went to the local office supply store and bought like a massive amount of one side of Velcro, put it on a poster board. So I had these two kind of cut out poster boards, just 
uh, you know, kind of they had st- it was sticky side. So that's the the soft Velcro is on these boards, and they've still lasted like five years, which is remarkable. That I think that, that, that those that side, and then for every game, I make a player card for every player in the game, and uh, and kind of a big. Uh, summary notes for for the team as well and I cut them out so I'm using my kindergarten arts and crafts skills which I never thought I would professionally but here I go every every time every game I use them Uh, and I place uh, I stick like a little piece of velcro of the opposite kind so it's hooks and loops and I don't remember which is which but I have the opposite kind that I, I have little kind of dots I'll stick to the back of each card and then I can put them on my baseboard in the formation they're in and that's what's in front of me for the game most you know other play-by-play announcers most use stickers that they'll print out and they'll put on like a manila envelope I like the velcro because I can remove it for subs and I can switch around the formation it's the same concept though and it's worked well for me how did you end up getting into sports play-by-play because you know you haven't always been on this track yeah, so in high school, I think I decided that I wanted to do it. I just re- I'd always loved sports. I was a math nerd growing up and a math major in college, but I loved sports uh, more than math. And so it's what I did kind of extracurricularly was sports journalism, and what I did academically was math. And I always wanted to be, I think, a sports writer like you guys. Um, and at some point in high school, uh, I think it kind of clicked like, well, you could also be a sports broadcaster, the play by play. That's also a job that people do. I mean, obviously, you know, it is, but you don't, I didn't, you didn't, I didn't really think of it like this is something I could do until yeah. maybe something time in high school it clicked oh people do that uh so let me try to do that because I, I loved it you know i remember growing up i'd play video games and i by myself and i'd be doing the play-by-play while yeah. playing madden 95 or whatever it yeah. was or you know shooting baskets in the backyard or playing soccer um you know kicking the ball off the wall my garage door whatever it is yeah uh so high school just kind of started to do it we had a we had a tv class in high school that i did play-by-play for soccer basketball Went to college, did a lot of play-by-play as well there, soccer, basketball, football, baseball. Um, went out of college directly into the kind of the, the TV sports anchor yeah. career track. It was just easier to Yeah, that's what I was thinking of job. when I was alluding yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, but I always loved doing play-by-play. Yeah. I wanted to. And um, End of the 2013 season, um, was connected with Matt Smith here at the Timbers, who I knew a little bit from that local TV world. He's a former sports anchor here in, in Portland, now the uh, VP of Broadcasting for the Timbers. And uh, had a meeting with him and, uh, you know, was really, you know, expressed interest in, in doing play-by-play. I had a big soccer background, worked for MLS when I was in college, mm-hmm. um, interned in their broadcasting department and then worked on in the production side of their Game of the Week on ESPN for a couple of years in the mid-2000s. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, all about, you know, giving it a go on radio and, and did and it worked out It worked out well. I'd always wanted to get back into play-by-play. I didn't necessarily see the path, um, but it, it happened and it's worked great. Well, and now you've got your first national television Television appearance cap under your, under your belt. Uh, what was that like getting your ESPN debut? Yeah, that was great. In yeah. June, you know, it's it's kind of I kind of view it like a like a cap, right? Like, yeah, right. You know what I mean? That's kind of feel it. Yeah, I got one one cap under my belt. Of course, you know, anybody in in any um, any profession, you know, they they like you like to be recognized for the work you do, and you want to um, you know try to test yourself at, at higher levels. And uh, the fact that ESPN reached out and, and 
you know, wanted me to do that game it was certainly a confidence booster, uh, and it was it was a great experience. Um, mostly from the from the sense that I've really only worked with one crew, our, our root sports crew, which mm. is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but I've only had on TV one color analyst my whole career, which is Ross Smith, who's oh sorry about one that. <laughs> you guys know very well. I've somehow managed to yeah. survive that. Oh, Ross is one of my best friends. And, no, your um, perseverance is admirable. It is, yeah. <laughs> Three years. We're just finishing our third year together. I'm going to need this off-season break. No. Uh, it's great. You know, and it's wonderful. But it is a good experience um, to, to work with somebody else just in the sense of from a, from a professional standpoint. That's Realistic. I mean, that's as, as, as I go through my career, I'm going to have many different color commenta- commentators that I work with. Um, and it's, it, was, it was good to just get an experience working with somebody else um, so that I can learn the challenges that that comes, working with somebody for the first time, how to navigate that, and how you know, different styles of people. Same thing with, with working with a different crew behind the scenes. Um, and obviously, yeah, you know, it's ESPN, right? It's everybody's, right. Every broadcaster's goal is to be on ESPN. I mean, you do, it's like growing up as a kid, you want to be on ESPN. <laughs> So that absolutely it was cool to at least a, a small goal to at least achieve it for for three you know two and a half hours there. Yeah. I just want to follow up on your relationship with Ross um, yeah. oh, um, more positively than apparently Richard wants to. But uh, <laughs> right. in terms of kind of developing that relationship, it seems like you guys have really good chemistry on the radio and aren't just you know cutting each other off. And it's yeah. it's made for I think we we're talking about you know one of the better broadcasts in MLS. Um, how did you sort of develop that relationship? Well, what you don't see is every time I go to talk, Ross puts his hand over my mouth and just keeps going because he has to know. Uh, I think it's just it, we, we're lucky. It's it's natural. Um, we started working together on Timbers and 30 in 2015. Before we started broadcasting together, I was just doing radio at the time. Ross was on TV. Um, and so it made it pretty easy when I was I got the opportunity to, to move to TV to work with Ross. During game broadcasts, we already kind of established that relationship professionally relationship um he's a great great person he's one of the best people that i know he's one of the yeah. nicest people that i know he gets along with everybody he works so hard uh, harder than i think most people realize he watches more full i mean you're talking about my prep earlier his prep is unbelievable he watches yeah. more full mls games than 95 to maybe more i don't know than maybe in detail too. Every, every game yeah. i mean he watches from the beginning of the year he watches every single game um in full not just the upcoming opponent but every game all yeah. the other 10 games he takes notes on them um and and people don't see that you know but but that's really impressive um especially for a local guy whose you know primary focus is the timbers um the fact that he watches every game so He's a great person, a great guy. He works hard. It's it's just we just kind of our personalities have clicked, I think. And it's not just on air. I mean, we're good friends off air as well. We we spend a lot of time together, hang out together. My wife is, is close friends with Ross's partner. Um, we uh, yeah, it's just it's 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 nice. I feel very very fortunate and lucky to to have a partner like that. Nat Porcher as well, you know, who joined yeah. our crew um, kind of full time this year as a field analyst on TV. He's up in the booth, a three man booth. Uh, now on the radio in the playoffs, also awesome. And we obviously knew Nat from his playing time and covering him, but he's come in and and has meshed really well. And the three of us have talked a lot about how we feel really lucky to have the crew that we do. And it even goes to to the guys behind the scenes who people the names that people don't know. 
John Bradford, Pat Brown, Pike Parker, uh, producers and directors for Root Sports that we travel with. Uh, we have a really good crew, and we're, we're really lucky we all get along as we do. Because I know in professional sports, uh, broadcasting, it, it's not always that way. You know, there's a lot of egos. Um, and, it, and crews that on air, they might seem like they get along great and don't necessarily off the air. But no, we're, we're really lucky. Well, thank you again to Jake for coming on the show. Um, great to finally hear from him. He hasn't been on the show before. Um, the, to, I, man, I'm about to say something that's just like sounds so biased, but tell me through all of the other broadcasts we watch in this league, who has a better local play-by-play guy than the Timbers? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this is probably biased on both accounts because I, I don't get to listen to the broadcasters as closely. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, you can watch soccer um, from other markets, but sometimes you have the weight team, sometimes... I just don't feel like I know the broadcasters as closely, so I'm definitely, this is an easy one to be a homer on, but I, I think that Jake does a, a tremendous job, obviously. Um, Timbers have a good history of broadcasters here with John Strong coming out of here, but I, I think do, yeah. Jake and Ross have been doing a great job. Yeah, the TSN guys, I think, do a really good job on the broadcast up in Canada. Those are the ones that jump out to me as a positive, but quite frankly, most There's of... not some great ones. <laughs> right. Most of the local broadcast teams across the country jump out to me as not so great. Jake Ziven got his first call up to an ESPN broadcast this year. I think that was well-deserved, and I think most people listening to this, if you're biased like me, probably think that Jake Ziven has been a really good replacement for John Strong in the long run. Okay, let's move on. Let's go to the Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take Interlude. I'm so excited about this that I'm not going to intentionally mispronounce Chris's last name. He's Chris <laughs> Reifer this week. Jamie, what's your hot take? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to go back to something that happened in, in the Seattle game, and, and I, I think that because of the result, this is, this has definitely become a, a side note um, in the game. Um, but it is important to me uh, to address, I, I think, one last time. Um, after extra time, uh, you could see on the video, it, and you could see there live in Seattle very clearly that the Timbers, a few of the Timbers, were celebrating. Sebastian Blanco is the obvious one. He drops to his knees in excitement. Um, looks like the Timbers have just won the game. And Zarek Valentin has to come over and explain that no, as we discussed earlier in our away goal discussion, away goals don't count in extra time, and therefore the Timbers had not won. The game was going to penalty kicks. Um, this is something the Timbers needed to know, because if they didn't know that, it, subconsciously or consciously, it may have changed the way they played in extra time. And, and because of that, had the Timbers lost... I think this would have probably been one of the biggest talking points coming out of the game. Did the Timbers change how they played in extra time because they thought they were leading on uh, leading due to the away goal tiebreaker role? Since they won, it, it doesn't matter as much. But what I didn't like is, is coming out of this, a lot of the media asked uh, Gio and, and Blanco and a few other guys in the locker room about this, and none of the Timbers really owned up to the fact that, yeah, Clearly, a few players didn't know what was going on. Um, and while, sure, I, I'm okay with at some point, you know, giving them a pass for this, the game was great. I just don't like that they wouldn't own up to what was clearly obvious on the field. I, I think ultimately, um, teams need to be honest after games. When there's mistakes that happen, you, you want to hear um, players or, or coaches admit, yeah, this went wrong. Yeah, it should have been done differently. This is how we're moving for, uh, on from it, or things like that. I think that it sort of took away a, a little bit from the post-game celebration that 
this thing that ultimately didn't matter in this game because the Timbers won, but would have been very, very important had the penalty kicks gone the other way, was something that the team just wouldn't address after the game. And when they did, they essentially said it didn't happen. So I'm going to leave it at that. But I think coming out of that game, uh, if there was one sort of uh, negative emotion I was feeling at the end of the match, um, it, it was kind of the reaction from the players on this aspect in the locker room. Okay. Um, well, my hot take is just an excuse to talk about University of Portland soccer. I think I've done this a couple of times this year where for lack of something hotter to talk about, I just keep talking about, oh yeah, you know, good soccer is back on the bluff. Like two years in a row, the men's team has been good three years in a row. Now the women's team is back into its winning ways and congratulations to the women. I believe they finished their season 10 and seven, not really in contention for NCAA tournament bid, but the men certainly were. They went to their last four games of the season with an undefeated record, unfortunately lost three of those last four. So after Saturday's loss, one nothing at home to an undefeated St. Mary's team, I think a lot of us were wondering if the pilots were going to get a bid to the tournament. Monday afternoon, it comes out. They not only get a bid, but uh, Nick Carlin Voigt, the home, the host, the head coach of the pilots men's program. He was an assistant at UCLA before coming to Portland. They're going to be hosting the Bruins on Thursday at Marlowe field. So if you're listening to this, know that there is an NCAA tournament game on the, on the bluff Thursday night. But I think that my hot take is really, look, if you're a team like the pilots that has gone out and tried to play tough competition out of um, conference, like UC Santa Barbara and some other teams, um, you are playing in a conference that, this year got as many tournament bids as the Pac-12 did. Both conferences got three bids this year. Um, you shouldn't be sweating it to the last moment when you've only lost three games this year, and two of those games were against other teams that qualified for the tournament. So I think my hot take is not hot takey enough that the big conference, small conference divide that exists the same way in basketball and football and soccer, it's actually helpful to think about the dynamics on a college sports landscape but it's not very helpful when you're trying to evaluate within the course of context of one season within the context of one team's play whether they should be going to a tournament or not so congratulations to the ncaa community for not giving into that for putting the pilots in and congratulations to the pilots on making it to the ncaa playoffs Thorns talk we have none and we intentionally have none because we're saving it for next week because we're going to take some time to look at what the international break was like for the U.S. women's national team, uh, look what the playoffs have been like for Anastar Nagorcevic and Switzerland, and also to see what the W League returns are like for all of the Thorns players who are international duty right now. So we'll just have to wait a little bit to get talking about Portland's other pro team. Yeah, and we'll also have to wait a little bit on predictions uh, because there is no game to predict this weekend. Uh, there's this cool. lull uh, in the most playoffs right now as this international break's happening. So no predictions this week. Um, no points or what we, infinity what points. On? What what <laughs> what framework can we create so that at this point next week you can claim to want infinity points for something? No, I'm just going to claim it. We don't need to predict anything. Oh, your prediction is that you're going to want infinity points. Yes. I don't think that's worth infinity points. That's like, okay, congratulations, four. That's like, that's like predicting a soccer game will have a kickoff. You never know. Might not have a kickoff. <laughs> I do know you're going to want infinity points for something. So. I'll come up with what that is. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, I think that um, concludes our show for today. So um, we are Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week 
on Oregon Live, Stumptown Footy, and Timbers.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs>